Hello, this is Risa Courier, host of the Alliance podcast, coming to you from the Humane Rescue Alliance in Washington, D.C. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Alexandra Dilly. She's the Director of Animal Behavior and Training at the Humane Rescue Alliance. And Alexandra's been in this role since 2013. She has pioneered a number of incredible programs to help the most shut down and fearful dogs at HRA. So um, we're really excited to have her to share her knowledge and expertise. So welcome, Alexandra. So my first question is, you've done a lot of really different things in your career, and that brought you to this role at HRA. Could you talk a little bit about how you ended up becoming a behavior and training expert and, and your your path that led you here? Yeah, sure. It was a not a direct path, as I think a lot of people experience in the shelter world. You know, I graduated from college in 2003, and I just went to, um, I actually had a an undergraduate degree at Wellesley College in music. And I I am still a, a classical singer who performs uh, when we're not in a pandemic, performs regularly. So I worked, I just kind of had odd jobs, you know, sort of pursuing a, a singing career for a while until about um, 2008. And at that point, I realized, you know, I, I, I didn't want to... You know, I didn't want to work in an office. I didn't want to continue to pursue singing as a career, um, even though I really enjoyed doing it. And I just, I've always been interested in psychology. Um, and we, I went back and took a number of psychology courses at George Washington University. And then we got a dog. Uh, we rescued a dog named Bala, who was a St. Bernard, and she was very adorable with us, but she really didn't like strangers or other dogs. And <laughs> so we started going to get help for her. And um, right around that time, too, for some reason, I I thought, you know, I just, I've always really loved animals. I think I would love to, uh, you know, I think I'd like to be a veterinarian. So I actually started going back and doing prerequisites for veterinary science. But like along the way there, there was like a couple years there where I just realized that psychology was so much more interesting to me. And we had learned so much with that initial dog Bala. And um, so I just decided to uh, go back and get a master's degree in animal behavior through a psychology program at Hunter College. So I did that. And about that time, I started, you know, getting connected with other trainers and apprenticing with them. You know, I actually uh, started working for a trainer who worked here at the shelter as well as her apprentice. And she, she gave me a lot of excellent guidance. And so I eventually was able to start working as a dog trainer. And um, then I, I also started volunteering at the shelter, kind of like uh, coexistent with all these other changes. And um, so, you know, I had that experience. Then I went and got my master's degree um, at Hunter College. And I came back and I worked at I worked at the former legacy organization, uh, Washington Animal Rescue League, um, and I started working there in 2011. 
Um, and then eventually I got promoted in 2013 uh, after I had my graduate work done to be director of the training department. So yeah, and then I've just been here. <laughs> I've just been here since then helping people with their animals. We do a lot of different things at the shelter. You know, it's not just working with animals in the shelter, but we also are working with adopters in the home and in classes. We run a lot of classes at HRA. So there's it's just been a really nice career choice because I get to do so many different things. That's that's really neat, and I'm sure you are really using your uh, human psychology background, too, because it seems like a lot of animal behavior issues are also connected, obviously, with um, the behavior of their, their people. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I think that there's a really nice perspective. Um, Dr. Daniel Mills, who's a veterinary behaviorist in England, has that, you know, it's not all about the animal, that a lot of these things that we deal with, they're natural things for the animal. And part of our job is to help people learn how to live with animals, because I think a lot of people aren't aren't necessarily used to that. We used to grow up and have lots of small family farms, but a lot of people don't have interactions, regular interactions with animals now until they get to be adults and they want to get a pet. So um, I think part of our job is to really explain what's normal and natural for pets and then kind of help people understand that and, and really learn about how their animals are trying to communicate with them. Not everything is really a disorder or like a real problem. It's just that we uh -huh. often understand where our animals are coming from. Yeah, that's important. Well, I wanted to ask you about um, something that I keep reading about in the media that shelters and nonprofit rescues and even breeders and pet stores are all reporting more consumer demand for dogs and puppies in particular than they have capacity to feel to fill. Some rescues are, including us, you know, we're getting dozens of applications for dogs and um, breeders are reporting waiting lists that go into all the way to 2021. What do you think is driving this demand for people wanting to add a pet to their family right now? I think part of it is that people are just, our lives are so much smaller right now. We are living a lot of people, not everybody, of course, there's certainly people still going out. But I think even those still going to work, like their social lives are pretty curtailed right now, if they're trying to avoid, you know, catching COVID. And so I think a lot of people are staying home a lot more and they have more time and they are also probably a little lonelier. And I think that they're realizing that animals can be great friends. And so I think that's driving part of the demand is that people just are at home and they have realized that they're lonely or, you know, maybe not really lonely, but that they'd really like to have a companion animal. So that's one reason. And I do think, you know, there's still different areas of the country are being hit right now. And I think some transports to shelters, like um, transport partners between shelters, maybe in the South and the Mid-Atlantic or the, or the North are kind of having some hiccups. So be, people being able to cross state lines, that kind of thing. So uh -huh. I do think there's maybe 
a little bit of a lack of some types of, of you know, in, influx into shelters that maybe there hadn't been before the pandemic. So those are my my guesses. I don't know what you think about it. Yeah, I think that's that makes sense. I think animals provide this social connection that we we're all craving and not being able to connect with other people. And, and I think people probably that have been on the fence about adding an animal to their lives suddenly find themselves with all this time to invest, right? uh, To really connect with that animal and, you know, do go through the potty training and go through Mm -hmm. um, all those different phases that you normally if you're commuting and out of the, the, you know, out of your home every day. So with that, this demand for animals, there's also seems to be kind of some impulse buying because the inventory is very slim, like Mm -hmm. a really snap decision. And so, you know, at our shelter, we do the virtual meet and greets. I had to make this as a comprehensive process as possible with, you know, most of our adoptable animals are now in foster homes. So the fosters can provide a lot of input on how the animal is doing and maybe additional training or support the animal needs um, to be successful with their new family. But mm-hmm. we also have people just kind of going into this blind, like deciding on an animal based on like how it looks. So I was having this conversation with one of my friends who's been trying to get a puppy now for, you know, since March, since everything Mm -hmm. shut down. And she finally found a breeder in Kentucky that was selling the kind of dog she wanted. And she jumped in her car and drove 10 hours (laughs) and, you know, bought this dog based on a grainy picture she saw on Facebook. And I was like, oh, that just seems, you know, there's a lot of vulnerabilities there. Um, And so I just wondered if you could speak to, you know, how people can be educated consumers and how they can make the best decisions when they're kind of forced to, you know, make decisions in a way that they normally wouldn't in terms of choosing to adopt a pet. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, I think, a lot of it is asking questions about the pet. It's so funny you say that because my sister, who lives in Texas, they just adopted a dog during the pandemic, too. <laughs> and um, they they went through Pet Finder. But it's just funny because I hadn't even realized yeah. that like my own sister just got a dog during the pandemic. <laughs> um, Everybody's. I mean, I go through yeah. my street and there's just puppies. I mean, everybody has a puppy right now. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, I think for an adult dog, it's great to ask a lot of questions. So you kind of know what match you're looking for. You know what you want to have in your life. Now, there's going to be most dogs, you know, are going to need to be house trained, even if they've been in a shelter And even if they've been in a home before, it's because a lot of dogs, you know, they don't necessarily realize that this house is the place they shouldn't potty. They thought that the the other house was the place they shouldn't potty. So (laughs) it doesn't necessarily take like a long time, but you do need to go through some of these basic things with any dog that you're going to get. But beyond that, I think, you know, realizing like, what you what your lifestyle is like you know do you have children 
you have a lot of people coming in and out of the house or do you kind of live more alone of what kinds of people are in your house you know there are lots of dogs that are great with kids and great with like large tall people but not every dog is you know and um, not every cat either. So we want to try to, you know, think about our own lifestyle and what would work with our lifestyle and then look at energy level and look at, um, you know, how outgoing the potential dog or cat is that you're going to adopt and see if that seems to make sense, you know, with your lifestyle. I think just asking a lot of questions, trying to get as much information about the background. And we don't always, you know, at the shelter, we don't always have a ton of information about every animal because they might have been transported in. But we do try to track everything that we can as far as, you know, how they've done at the shelter, if we've noticed that they've been afraid of certain things or you know, their energy level, you know, so if you're not going on lots of runs every day, you know, you may not want to get a dog that is super high energy, you know, or if you do go on a lot of runs every day, and you live in a busy area, you may not want to get a dog that barks at other dogs on leash, you know, or that lunges and kind of has some reactivity on leash. But if you've got a backyard, or if you've got a little quieter environment, um, you can take on different things than somebody who, you know, is living in the middle of, of a very busy place. So I think for us, we're just trying to, you know, send that information along to adopters and um, make sure that they that we're making the right match. Well, and, and you bring up a really important point about what it what you can expect when you're going to get an animal from a shelter like HRA and that our animals are all, they go through an evaluation process. So you are, you know, making, seeing if how they engage with strangers, you're touching their, them in sensitive places like their paws and up and down their spine and taking food away. And also, you know, seeing how they engage with other animals, with dogs and, um, mm-hmm. c- could you talk a little bit about that behavior process and and what that reveals? Yeah, sure. I mean, I do think that we, uh, we try to get a lot of different sources of information for our evaluation. So it's not just about um, one, you know, assessment at one time. But we do do a safer evaluation, which is... Um, a behavior evaluation that was created by the ASPCA. And we basically look at how the animal is when we're looking into their eyes and making, you know, eye contact, because that can be threatening for some animals. Um, when we're holding their collar, when we're petting them and restraining them. And petting and restraining are kind of two different things. So just because a dog or a cat likes to be pet, it doesn't mean that they like to be held and restrained. Um, similarly, different animals have certain sensitivities about different body parts. Um, not every animal wants to be touched on their paws or they may have like special areas that they're not really comfortable with you touching. So we try to look for those sorts of things. Um, and that is in the safer. Um, we also look at, you know, their arousal and, um, how excited they get during like games of tag. If we're kind of you know, touching them on the butt and running away, what's their reaction going to be in that situation? And we look at uh, if we see any like glaring issues with um, 
you know, the guarding of, of high value resources like food bowls and, um, toys. So, you know, that's, and then we also, the last part of it is a dog to dog introduction, which I think for people that live in really urban environments is a little bit more of something that they want to know more about because some of our adopters don't always have large backyards or like six foot fences, that kind of thing. So those are all the things we kind of look at on that basic evaluation. And then from there, we are just watching how they're doing in the shelter in general. Um, And we go through and look at every animal every day, you know, on our rounds that we do with all the operations um, staff together. And we look and see, are they looking really scared here? And a lot of times fear is very context dependent. So, you know, they may do just fine once they get into a home, but with lots of doors shutting and lots of strangers like walking very quickly past them, people opening their door and kind of staring at them, like all those things can be really overwhelming to an animal. So we try to make sure that we have some humility in our evaluation process to know that we're not always sure, you know, how, how that, that this, you know, if we're seeing a dog that's fearful in a home that it's really going to translate, or sorry, in the kennel that it's really going to translate into the home. Um, similarly with dogs that are, you know, in the shelter, I think the pandemic, one of the great things about, I hate to say the great things about the pandemic, but one of the more positive things is that a lot of we've had so many more fosters available. And so we have had a lot of dogs getting straight into foster and a lot of cats straight into foster. And we haven't, you know, had as much issues with, uh, you know, like longer term kenneling of animals that can sometimes lead to a lot of frustration and behaviors that are harder to manage because they're because they want to get into a home and they, they don't want to be living in a kennel for the, a long period of time. So so all of those things are things we monitor and we report back to each other on. We schedule sessions for training sessions for our animals to help them if they are fearful, to help them become less fearful. If they are feeling like seemingly overexcited or frustrated in the kennels and kitty condos to help them get more outlets for energy above and beyond like what every animal gets when they come in the shelter. So my staff is really doing a lot of that kind of work with with the animals on a daily basis. But that's, you know, then we just take all that information and we keep it in a record and we kind of get a better idea of who the animal is as they stay with us. And I think also one of the great things about foster is that you really get a chance to see what the animal's like in a home setting. So And again, we've seen differences between homes, but I do think that just having an animal in a home gives you a lot of great information about how they've done with certain things. So I think just asking, you know, specific questions like, how did this animal do? Have you had, you know, have you walked him outside? What did he do when he was outside? Not necessarily trying to label anything specifically, but just asking open-ended questions about, Um, you know, how the animal did in different environmental contexts has been what we use to get information about animals. Yeah, that that's also important and uh, informative to any potential adopters, because at the shelter, you know, you're getting so many different eyes um, on the animal from volunteers to 
veterinary technicians and animal care staff and our behavior team. And so you do get kind of a holistic understanding of, of what's going on in that animal and then having the, you know, our animals go into foster and experience that home life for a little bit gives a right. other dimension of their behavior and their personality. So I also want to ask you, so, you know, once somebody, they, they adopt an animal and they bring their animal home, Mm -hmm. um, what are some things that they can do to make that transition successful and a positive experience for their family? So, you know, you mentioned earlier that most animals are going to need a little refresher on, you know, potty training so mm-hmm. is a big one. Mm-hmm. What are your recommendations for, for, you know, potty training and other transition experiences? Yeah, well, I think part of it is realizing that, you know, we don't get to explain to the animal where they're going or what the situation is now. Like there is a lady who's teaching one of her dogs to actually um, talk using buttons. <laughs> it's amazing. And she, wow. her, yeah, I think her handle on Instagram is like hunger for words and she's a speech pathologist. But besides that one dog who's been <laughs> taught to like actually speak, um, we, it's very hard to, you know, tell our dogs what's happening to them. So we really need to be patient with them and realize that it does take time for them to settle into a new routine and into a new environment. And I know that, like, definitely for a lot of people, it can be a stressful time the first couple days you get your animal home if they are not completely settled into, you know, the situation. So you might see a lot more anxiety from the animal than you'll eventually see once they settle in. And I think just, you know, making transitions as easy as possible. So, um, you know, don't just take them home and put them in another room, like let them be around you for the most part. Um, your dog or cat, well, your, your dog really may not be potty trained completely. So, um, you know, you don't want them running all over the house because you don't want them having accidents all over the house, but, you know, putting them on a leash and keeping them near you and holding onto that leash um, is a really good idea. Starting on some crate training right off the bat and knowing that, you know, it's not a great idea unless the dog already loves crates to just put them in a crate and shut the door and lock them in right away. Um, a lot of times you'll get really strong negative reactions that could have been avoided if we had just taken the time to, like, leave the door to the crate open and toss treats in and let them come and go a little bit and kind of enjoy the crate and and, and start to see it as like their bed and their their place of security rather than you know I can't have you in here right now so you're going in the crate so I think just having um a little more like understanding of the fact that this is not just a transition for you but this is actually a huge transition for the animal too um, and along the same lines, you know, we're not really doing a lot of socializing right now. So it's not so much of an issue, I think. But, um, you know, don't have a bunch of people come over and meet the dog right away or meet the cat right away. Give the give the animal some time to get used to their surroundings in a quieter space. And then after, 
you know, a week or so, or even two or three weeks, then we start to kind of open up their social excursions a bit more. Again, you know, that's not such a big deal right now. But I do think also just like, along the same lines, kind of the level of handling that you're doing. So when before I really knew a lot about animal behavior, I thought it was normal to like squeeze my dog and hug them and kiss them on the head. Um, mm-hmm. to and <laughs> my dog Bala taught me that was not appropriate. <laughs> she like she very, very carefully warned me didn't hurt me but she totally told me that is not something I like and I was like really shocked because I didn't realize that not all animals love this but really they must be you know they must have that happening to them from a very young age and actually enjoy it for it to be something that they enjoy later in life it's not normal it's actually like being restrained and hugged is really scary for animals because it's like being caught by a predator um, mm. if they're not if they're not like desensitized to it and and socialized to it so um you know things like that so just like we don't have to be best friends right away, you know, like give give your animals some space to like get used to their surroundings and to, to choose to interact with you. I think that is such a key thing. And I've made lots of great relationships with animals just by doing that, by being you know, allowing them to choose to interact in certain circumstances rather than saying, we're going to do this now. And you're going to, you know, you're going to be my teddy bear kind of a thing. Well, that makes sense. And I, I think it was Patricia McConnell and fearful dog. Maybe that was where she wrote it, but Mm -hmm. she said something to the effect that when she has a new animal come into the home for the first few weeks, it's like, you know, she's not engaging with them a lot. She's not initially petting. She's not, you know, it's mostly just meeting their essential needs. Those first weeks, um, just not create a stressful situation for them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I said it better. That's exactly the best way to go. Like less is more in that situation. And then once you learn what they're, and also, you know, learning about body language too, there's a lot of, there's some bad videos out there, but there are definitely, you know, good videos out there on dog body language. And, you know, I Speak Dog is a great website resource if you want to learn more about your dog's body language, because I think that there are oftentimes subtle signs that dogs show. And then there's additional resources, iCat Care um, for cats, too, if you want to learn more about cat care and body language. Um, I think those are like, that's really key so that you can, if you are making your animal uncomfortable, you can stop before it escalates into more o- obvious warning signals. That's key and that's something that, you know, as you get to know your animal, like they'll let you do a lot more to them than they would when you when they first move into your house. But you don't want to set like a bad beginning. You know, you want to make a good mm-hmm. first time. So I think less is more for sure. Well, and it's important to understand what you're seeing, too. I mean, I've had dogs my entire life, and then I went to Joe's training. Mm -hmm. Was it Fearful Dog? Or I can't remember what the title of his training was. But, you know, just seeing, like, the dog, the licking, his lips, the different eyes, the 
the like tail wagging, but if it's a yes. tail, so there's so many signs that are like, this dog is really uncomfortable. You need to deescalate and step away. But that I looked at that and thought that seems fine to me, you know, <laughs> you know, like from a very, um, just lay person's perspective, even as a very experienced dog parent, you know, I didn't realize all those cues. So it is really important that people are aware because I think I see just like everyone sees these videos and pictures on social media that are super cute of babies Mm -hmm. all over dogs, but you can see the dog, you know, the way their eyes looked their you know, the ears are pinned back like, oh, that's actually not a safe situation happening right there. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's so much, especially with dogs, they're so, their faces are so expressive. Mm-hmm. And once you learn what to look for, which are very simple things, but you just kind of need to, you know, see some videos, see some pictures of it so you can recognize it. Yeah, the world just opens up to what you're seeing your dog's reactions <laughs> as. You know, it's just like fascinating to see how they take in the world, you know, and that they're, and I was the same way before I got into behavior, I kind of saw my dog as like a teddy bear or like, Mm -hmm. you know, like a living teddy bear. And they're not, they're like, they have their own opinions. They want to do certain things. They, they have preferences. They, they feel so much. They have so many like emotions that are so similar to ours on a, on a general level, you know? So it's kind of, you know, that's why I love that um, hunger for words lady uh, who's doing the <laughs> teaching her dog to talk because I think it just shows what a rich emotional life animals actually have and how, how, how easy it is to miss that, you know? Well, and I think that's true for all animals, even beyond companion animals, as, you know, as scientists and researchers and our understanding of animal emotion and psychology grows, we realize they have really complex family structures and they have complex emotional needs. And I think that we are moving away from this notion that they're you know, people refer to them as like my baby, but they're not babies. They're, (laughs) they have, you know, they have needs and desires and thoughts and feelings. And, um, you know, and the more that we empower ourselves with that knowledge, the better we can be as caretakers. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you, I know for you know, young animals in particular, the pandemic is probably pretty challenging because, you know, they require socialization. And that's the first thing you know, if you have a puppy or a kitten is that they need to be handled and socialized and they need to experience, you know, a lot of new environments and people coming to your house and going out into the street and being pet and interacting with others. And so what, what recommendations do you have for people that are trying to socialize their young animals during a pandemic? 
Yeah, that's a great question. It is difficult. It is more difficult right now. I do think one of the great things is that we can still get outside with our animals a lot. And um, I think that just getting them going, you know, walking around outside in different environments is really helpful. And, you know, wear a mask. But on leash, you can let you can stay six feet away with a mask on from somebody else and let your puppy be petted by that person and you know let your you know I think let them give treats or give treats to your dog when they're seeing people going by and then for people that you can manage with have them hold your puppy while you're standing six feet away outside you know it doesn't all have to be someone coming into your home to do this or you know going into a building to do it and I think with COVID like from what I know we're learning that the outdoors is much safer in general, as long as we still social distance and, you know, wear masks. Um, so I think giving your puppy lots of outside experiences is really important. And then there's a lot that you can do with your own puppy to help them get comfortable with things that are going to happen to them normally. So like, te- like grooming them regularly, offering treats with the grooming, holding them a lot, teaching them that it's fun for you to come and, you know, take something away from them, like (laughs) maybe like a toy because they get something even better, uh, like a, a delicious treat when you do. Those sorts of things are really important, even, you know, startle responses. So something kind of startling happens and then they get rewarded with a lot with a bunch of treats right afterwards. Not so that they're panicking, but something that that seems tolerable. Intensity is really important when you're working with animals and trying to help them get comfortable with things. So, you know, start small, but like, you know, you have this little pan that drops on the floor, then they get a bunch of treats right afterwards. So (laughs) um, trying to make or, you know, your dog is sleeping and you wake them up. And they get some treats. Your puppy is sleeping. That, those are really good things to do. But socialization isn't all about you know strangers and meeting strangers, even though that is a big part of it. It's also about going to lots of different environments and also about having lots of different experiences that they're going to need to be able to to deal with when they're adults, you know, and, you know, getting startled as one, having things taken away from them as another, being restrained and petted and groomed and checked out by the veterinarian is another one. I think if you can make appointments with your puppy to when they're getting their vaccines, check out your veterinarian ahead of time to see if they're using treats. I think a lot of, luckily, a lot of veterinarians are getting much more into the use of treats and trying to have cooperative care than maybe used to be the case. So, um, you know, even just scheduling a time for the puppy to go in and sit with some people at the vet office and get treats is a really great idea. At our vet, I know that we just drive up and we hand them off outside and then the dog goes in with the the vet techs and the administrative staff and the veterinarians separately. So, you know, just trying to orchestrate that so that you're like, I have a new puppy here. They would love to spend some time at the vet office so they get a little more comfortable. Could I just bring my puppy and you take it inside or you take them inside and give them some treats, maybe on an exam table, those sorts of things. So you don't necessarily have to be doing it all yourself, but you're like getting them into 
new situations and providing high value uh, rewards for them in those situations so that hopefully they enjoy them, which is the goal of socialization. That That's great. And having that kind of desensitizing them to the veterinary experience, especially as, um, you know, my cat recently had to be handled with like the rubber bite proof gloves. <laughs> and she's still a kitten. She just has decided like, this is not a place I'm gonna, you know, she has like a big floofy cat. And she's like, nope, you're you can look, but not touching. Definitely not the belly. She needed salmon. So I, I definitely recognize I have some work to do in desensitizing her to the carrier and going to the vet because all of it is traumatic for cats, especially. Yeah, that's true. And it's, it, it's funny you say that because um, we just started an online cat class um, for people, which is just like so fantastic. And we do like carrier desensitization in there. And um, there's just so many things that, you know, I think you can teach a cat at home to help them cope with the rest of the world once they get into the rest of the world or just with their lives. So our cat class has been super popular and I, I think it's a perfect, like, addition and the perfect time for it to happen, you know, during the pandemic, because it's like we, you know, everybody's looking at, like, what what all can we do at home to enrich our animals' lives, you know? And so, uh, but that, yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Well, and cats really do have the capacity to learn. I think people think about dogs and that they can learn tricks and new behaviors and they can be trained, but cats have the same capacity. And right. so, yeah, why not when you've got some extra time, teach your cat, you know, to engage with you in a different way. And it's so good for their brain. It's good for their bond and to be learning those new skills. Um, so we have time for one final question. So I wanted to ask you, you know, the hopefully this situation with the social isolating will not last forever. We're all, you know, watching the news with the vaccines and um, things are looking promising. So at some point we are going to go back to work and commuting and, and regular lives again. Um, so, you know, how can people who have these pets prepare for that transition because how I mean that's going to be not only a big transition for the person but also the animal suddenly having their person out of the house for 10 hours right yeah exactly it's interesting we're actually doing some research at HRA with Dr. Daniel Mills um, at the University of Lincoln on how the pandemic is affecting animals right now because and we're trying to look at it over time so to see you know what are the changes in routine and how is your this this particular one is just focused on dogs but um, how is your dog you know coping with you being home more I've heard some research has uh, come out saying that some of the bites have increased a bite <laughs> a rate a rate of of bites animal bites has increased because people are home so much with their animals so i think that you know part of it is just having a schedule with your animal that doesn't change night and day when you're there versus not there and that might not be completely possible but you should at least be leaving your animal alone for like a, an hour each day at least. 
even if you're not out of the house, just putting them somewhere so that they remember how to cope with life when you're not around. And I think, you know, it's great to get them enough exercise, but taking them on eight walks a day is not going to be what they're getting once you go back to your other schedule, probably. So you want to make sure that you're taking those sorts of things into consideration. So I think just trying to think of schedule and routine and keeping things similar to for them in the way that it will be once you go back to work, if at all possible. So that, you know, and that might require, again, like some extra thought and planning into, okay, it's time for Fluffy to have some quiet time with nobody around for now, you know, so that Fluffy is aware of what that's like. And it's not shocking when it when it happens again. I think that's probably the biggest thing we do have a webinar that we recorded earlier in the pandemic on coping with um, separation related issues uh, during the pandemic and afterwards. And also, for animals that do have true separation anxiety, like if you're working from home, that's one of the best times to actually start working on separation anxiety training when you can um, actually not leave them alone longer than they can handle it because that's part of building up their tolerance to being left alone is not to just leave them alone for way longer than they can tolerate it. So so those are all probably the most important factors. But if you wanted to check out that that webinar, that's also on our website um, with Tracy Krulik, who's our certified um, separation anxiety trainer at HRA. So for, for those listening, they can go to Humane Rescue Alliance org, and there are a number of resources, videos, webinars, information, including contact information. So if they want to reach out to your team for some very specialized one-on-one training, that's available as well. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Well, thank you, Alexandra. This is this has been really helpful for me personally, but also I'm sure it's been really helpful for everybody listening. Um, you know, there's just I, I I feel like we we really could do a series um, just on one of these issues. Uh, you know, animals are just they're complex and amazing, and it's it's so I I really love talking to you because I always feel like I just come away with you know, such a better and deeper knowledge of these creatures that we share our lives with. Oh, thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Risa, as always, too. And um, I really appreciate your dedication to all the animals at HRA and throughout our country, really. So thank you for having me. Well, thank you. And um, for those of you who are listening, um, please do subscribe so you can get more great uh, podcast interviews like this one.